Father's Day. This morning we're going to be talking about the Father for us. Father's Day was begun in the United States the early part of the 20th century, actually in response to the success of Mother's Day. (laughs) Wouldn't you know? Actually, a lady named Grace Clayton, after the successful promotion of Mother's Day in West Virginia, encouraged the first observance of Father's Day. It was held on July 5th. 1908 in Fairmount, West Virginia, at the Williams Memorial Methodist Episcopal Church. Confused people. And uh, Miss Clayton, unfortunately, she was mourning the loss of her father from the monograph mining disaster in near, nearby monograph, West Virginia. 361 men passed away, 250 of them fathers, leaving about 1,000 fatherless Children, And they, she suggested that her pastor honor those fathers, which, uh, which he apparently did. And it caught on from that point forward. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9 says, Furthermore, we have all had fathers, human fathers, who corrected us, and we paid them respect. And it asks the question, Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? And I think it's a very valid point. You know, there are good people and there are bad people, but even the best father is at best imperfect and flawed. I know this because my children remind me of it regularly. (laughs) Fathers make mistakes, big mistakes, small mistakes. Sometimes they know that they've blown it. Sometimes they don't. Whatever the benefit may be that we have received from earthly fathers or even from the absence of, of a fa- I mean, let's face it, you can even learn from a bad example. You can learn great things from a bad example. Some of the best fathers that I know are men that grew up without fathers, and they have an appreciation for what it means to be in that role. Today, as we, we set apart this day for our earthly commemoration of fathers, you and I are going to spend some, some time focusing on our Heavenly Father as we should every single day, because he is the real example. And we will be trying to give ourselves a better idea of all that he has done for us in order that we might walk in wisdom as the children of light. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. In John chapter 12, verse 35 When Jesus said to them, a little while longer you have the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons and and daughters of the light. You know, God doesn't warn us about things that can't happen. This is what we need, to be sons and daughters of the light. Not always what we want, unfortunately but what we desperately need, to be with the Father, to have the nature and the temperament of the Father at work inside of us, and finally to have his favor so revealed upon our lives that we are identified by what we do, how we think, what we say, as his very children. With that in mind, I would like today to look at three passages of the scripture from the letter of 1 John written at the tail end of the first century by the Apostle John, really written by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John, but certainly a whole long time before the observance of the first Father's Day. This morning we're going to address the Father with us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about the Father in us from 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And finally, the Father upon us from 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Being a parent is a difficult thing to put into words. Um, I've tried to explain to people what's going to happen to them when they become parents. And it's, I think I, I like to um, compare it to getting classroom preparation for 
parachute jumping. Really, I mean, you know, I can talk to you all day long about jumping out of a plane with a parachute. Once you jump out of that plane, your whole perspective is going to change forever. And the same thing is true of being a parent. I mean, obviously, we all understand the nuts and bolts of what it is. But it is a thing that if you are truly attached and invested in it, into the whole situation of being a parent. And by the way, you don't have to be invested in it. People routinely treat having a child like it's a hobby or more and more like it is something that really cramps their style, which, you know, unfortunately agrees with the scriptural assessment of the last day. Second Timothy 3.1 says that in the last days, people will be unloving. King James translates that as without natural affection, a storgo, a natural affection, without that. And, you know, people are lacking natural affections in our world. As we watch the world turns, and I don't mean the soap opera, uh, you start to wonder if it doesn't mean more than that as well. Regardless, if you are attached and invested in your family, it will change who you are like few things ever will. Anything probably short of being born again. If you happen to be a believer in Christ at the time that you become a parent, God will use this in the most extraordinary ways to mature and affect and develop Develop your attachment and your walk, your understanding of who the Father is. Not just information, but inside. God will change you inside. And folks, we need that. We really need that. Information is not a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. True information is profitable. It's a huge benefit. What we need is for the Holy Spirit of God himself to affect and change us by the, his presence in that true information that we get from the Word of God. One of the the many reasons why prayer is so important. Do you pray before you read the Bible? Do you ask the Lord to speak to you? How about before you come to church? Oh Lord, help us to hear and receive your instruction. To make that truth part of who we are. Keep us from being talking heads that cannot demonstrate the truth in the way we live. So first we have the Father with us. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This message is the product of an eyewitness account. Obviously, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. The purpose of the message is fellowship. The purpose of that fellowship is a connection, an attachment between John, Jesus, the Father, and us, all of us. In the book of 1 John, this letter of 1 John, John lists five reasons why he wrote the letter of 1 John. This is the first. Chapter 1, verse 3 is the first of the five reasons. Read through it and find the other four. There's no service tonight. You should have plenty of time. John wants us to have something. And in the English, it's translated as fellowship. Do you notice that's not a word you hear a lot? You go to the supermarket, you don't see people talking about fellowship. In fact, if you were walking through the supermarket and you heard fellowship, you'd think, it's a believer. You, you would, you know, or in, in anywhere you go. Only in church do you hear about fellowship. What does it mean? Well, the Greek word is the word koinonia which is translated in the King James Bible. Fellowship, communion, communication, distribution, contribution, or to communicate. Shows up 20 times in the King James Bible. The word's translated all kinds of ways. And when you find a word that's translated like that, folks, usually a really good indication that it was a difficult word to squeeze in to the English language. The truth is, we lose things in the English language here and there. The first... He's not only intending, and this is an important part of not the word so much as the tense in which it is written in the Greek. John's intention is not just that we would have this fellowship. He's intending that we would keep on having this fellowship with John and Christ and the Father, uninterrupted and continually. That's the way it's written in the particular tense it's in. Continually happening in our life, we have this connection. And koinonia and fellowship, this connection... Uh, A.T. Robertson, Greek scholar, says it means to share in, 
emphasizing a mutual relationship. Again, not just our relationship with the church in Christ and the Father, because as you read the verse here, John really represents the church, but it is also their relationship with us. It goes both ways. And you know all about your relationship with the Father. What do you know about his relationship with you? And I'm not just playing with words here. It's important. Because when you think about a relationship between a, a parent and a child, they're very different. The parent has one relationship to the child. child has a very different relationship to the parent. Parents love children differently than children love parents. It works to their different goals, different perspectives. The father has a conscious engagement, purposeful relationship with you. One in which he is focused on issues that he is dealing with and they are different from one day to the next. This is the reality of God's relationship with you. He is focused upon your life. I mean, you talk to people, they act as if the whole thing operates from their end. No, not at all. Not at all. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who works in you both to do and to will for his good pleasure. He has got an agenda. Robertson, the Greek scholar again, he says, Our fellowship is a partnership involving the church in Christ and the Father, and it is only possible in Christ as he bridges the gap between us and the Father. In the Gospel of John chapter 14, amazing chapter, Jesus in verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Okay? Koinonia. We will come to him and make our home with him. That's exactly what he's talking about. That home in 1423 is our fellowship, the connection, our attachment to the Father. He goes on past that in chapter 14 to talk about how the Holy Spirit works in the situation. And he's talking about our salvation. This is our salvation. More specifically, justification. Entering into that relationship. The situation where we acknowledge Christ's death on the cross, resurrection from the dead, and we are then cleansed from our sins, past, present, and future. Justified, once for all. And we have fellowship with the Father, and with Christ, and with the church. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. Fellowship, connection, agape love. Koinonia, all works together. The Father's connection to us through Christ, and it makes it just as if we had never sinned. That that which you have seen and heard, we de- that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father, with his Son, Jesus Christ. In this fellowship that we have with John, the Father in Christ, the fellowship that John has desired for us, the fellowship that makes everything in our life really work, sets, sets our lives in proper order, allows our life to function as we were intended to function. And some of you are saying, wait a minute, you're telling me that my life is functioning the way it's supposed to? Okay. Think for a minute. You are in the middle of of a huge spiritual war. You're not battling against flesh and blood. People, human beings, are not your problem. You're battling against principalities and powers in heavenly places. It is a huge spiritual war. And in the middle of that war, which you cannot see, and you're not going to be able to entirely understand what's going on, you are serving God's purpose, not your purpose, You're serving God's purpose. You have been bought with a price. You are not your own. This is not about you. You're involved. You're trusting in God for the outworking of issues of eternal significance. Okay? But with that in mind, the answer is yes. This is how your life is intended to function. And very soon, folks, very soon, we are going to be good with that. Very soon, we're going to be standing in the presence of the Lord saying, yeah, 
that was all worth it. I want to see all those people that I talked to. I can't do this. I can't. I can't. You know, you know where God says that he won't put me through anything I can't handle? He's confused. I can't handle it. Now I want to see them when we get to heaven. How you doing? Everything okay? So you got a problem with your life? No. That's right. Maybe not today. I mean, we have good days and bad days, but that is the target that we're shooting for. Folks, we can't lose sight of it. Do not lose sight of the target. In chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 15, we have the Father in us. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, this is an an exhortation. I mean, even an injunction. Not, Not so much concerning our conduct, but a very direct prohibition concerning our affections. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Not... Well, you know, this isn't the best. Or maybe you ought to cut back in that area. Or maybe you should pray about this. The Greek, the Greek says, agapeo me. Agapeo, love me. Not. Love not. It's very direct. Something like Pastor Xavier would say. <laughs> Nobody is going to walk away from that statement with a question mark. Huh, I wonder what he meant. What do you think he meant by that? No. Love not. Very clear. Unless you're not paying attention. The the Greek tense, and I'm not going to explain the tense, but I just want you to hear what it is. This is the Greek tense. Present active imperative. Sounds important, doesn't it? It is. Well, you know, I I don't love the world, but there are just some things here, you know. I'm just kind of attached. Well, how attached? How attached, huh? Have you ever talked to somebody who's lost their cell phone? <laughs> and they have this look of panic on their face, you know? My cell phone. Um, they're trying to hold it together, but you can see that they're on the edge. They're about to lose it there, you know? And then they will say something to you. You, you don't understand. That phone is my life. And, uh, you know, folks, the enemy has a lot of ammunition to use against us. He really does. And... I'd like to say otherwise, but the truth is we give him more and more ammunition to use against us all the time. The, he, he's loaded for bear. He knows exactly what it is that he can attack you with. And maybe technology and social networking, maybe that's not your thing. You can bet your enemy knows what button to push. And let me tell you, this guy is skilled. Enemy knows the areas of vulnerability in our lives. He even knows the areas we don't know about. And apart from the help and the protection of the Lord, we'd, we wouldn't stand a chance. We really wouldn't. And I say that to you because we need to understand how decisive it is for us to allow the attachment to the things of this world to constrain our hearts. You know? Talk to young ladies who are getting in relationships with somebody who's not a believer. Or a young man, vice versa. Either way, you talk to them. And they don't understand. They don't understand. Because once you are emotionally involved in a situation, you cannot reach down your throat and adjust that. You can't change yourself. You say, okay, well, I just don't feel that way anymore. No, does not work that way. You will watch your life take off in a direction and think, what am I doing? It's horrific. When I attach myself to the things of this world, folks, I am basically lighting my own house on fire. I am shooting holes in the bottom of my boat. I'm taking a chainsaw to the tree of my life. For us to get the big picture here, to get a detailed understanding of the full impact of the Lord's viewpoint on this issue, we're presented with the the second part of, of verse 215. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If anyone loves the world, the love of the fathers. So what the Holy Spirit is doing here is giving us a clear understanding. The love of the world and the love of the father have always been and are now mutually exclusive. It's a huge statement. They cannot occupy the same location. It's not possible. James 4.4, James writes, 
Whoever, therefore, wants to be the friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. Is it reasonable that a person that loves the world qualifies as a friend of the world? And notice, not just loving the world. It includes the things in the world. It's very specific. Because you know how people are with the rabbis. Well, I, I, love the, I don't love the world, but, you know, there's some things. No. God can be this specific, folks. God deals with stark reality. God deals in a black and white world because God can look at the life of every single human being, one person at a time, and not, not only judge their actions, not look at them the way we look at them and try and deduce what they were thinking. People don't know what they're thinking. How often do you talk to somebody? Why would you do that? I have no idea why. Then they're being honest. They don't know what they were thinking. But you know what God does? God can look at a person and he can roll back that thought process and pinpoint exactly what a person, and exactly their responsibility, and exactly. And there's no equivocation whatsoever. God doesn't have to be reasonable. He knows every single detail. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Because he alone sees the heart and knows the mind of every person who has ever lived in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we have, we have a choice. Actually, we have three choices. And because we can't look at it any other way. How, how do we look at ourselves, first of all? Do we give ourselves a free pass? Oh, I'm okay. I love the Lord. I read the Bible. I go to church. Are you impressed when people tell you they go to church? You know? No, I'm not. I've been to churches. I've met people who go to church. It's scary. God help us. Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Folks, this verse is not here for me to brush it aside without a thought. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. This is the word of God. Examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. Do you not know yourself that Jesus Christ is in you unless you are disqualified? Secondly, how do I look at the world? Certainly, I mean, nobody can deny there are a lot of dramatic changes in the world in a very, very short period of time. In the last 10 years, a lot of changes. Changes, <laughs> changes I think, that would have caused Robert Young on Father Knows Best to scream like a little girl. Um, well, yeah, yeah, but... You know, all these changes are just normal coincidence in the ebb and flow of moral culture over time. Really? They are? You don't think that the world is flat out evil? You don't think the world that is in your face is demonic? You need to look again. You need to look more closely. There are a great many things that our enemy is devoted to affecting. The war is about us. We are the territory in this war, folks. We are the territory. We are what, what the enemy is trying to take in this war. So when, when he affects the world environment, and I don't mean global warming, I mean spiritual atmosphere, as we allow the world into our hearts, we are affected. And I think that there is nothing that is more of a priority to our enemy and to the kingdom of darkness than to blur the line between good and evil. If he can blur or take away or remove that line between what's good and what's evil, then he can get you to corrupt yourself and not feel convicted about it. When there's a hard, fast line, you see that line, you go, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. But when that line is blurred, I'm not really sure. Should we do that? Should we not? See, this is where PG-13 came from. It really is. Back in like, what, 1982, we were talking about this the other day. The very first PG-13. You had R and you had PG. And I could go see PG movies. I knew that was fine. I knew I couldn't see R movies. You know? And then they came out with PG-13. I was like, 
What do I do with that? Is that okay? And sometimes you'd go to a PG-13 movie. That's good. Yeah, that's fine. Wow, that's great. It's awesome. Sometimes you go, whoa, no, heaven forbid. And then they start making good R-rated movies, nothing bad in them, you know, like the movie Glory. Here's a movie that's very instructive, encouraging, and has great character, all kinds of stuff, you know, and not even really any bad language in, in the thing, just a little gore here and there, and that's all pretend. Some of the other stuff is real. God help us. The enemy wants to blur that line to inhibit us, to affect us, to put his darkness into our hearts. You know, if you have an opportunity, maybe you should make opportunity to listen to Pastor Chuck Smith's teachings through the Bible. Get them all on a little thumb drive. Plug them in your car, in your computer, and listen to all the way from Genesis to Revelation by Pastor Chuck. Pretty awesome. You get to hear him talk about how when he was a child, how grief-stricken, And unnerved he was at the thought of going into a movie theater and seeing Pinocchio. Because he was scared to death that the rapture might happen while he was in there, and he didn't know that he would go. And you know, Pinocchio has a pretty strong moral story. It really does. I mean, yeah, there's some fairies and a little bit of magic in there. But it's a very moral... I mean, how would you compare that with a movie today? Like, uh, pick one. It does, you know, folks, the entertainment world is so saturated with demonic influence that it truly defies any reasonable assessment. I'm convinced they have whole offices and movie studios that do nothing else but figure out ways to get garbage that's going to stumble Christians into a perfectly good film. Here's a perfectly good movie. Let's put these words in here and this scene and this and that. And then, ha, 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 ha. And they laugh. You know, it's terrible. It's reality. You think I'm being a little extreme? TV, radio, movies, the internet, these things scare me because they are okay with everybody. They have the addictive profile of crack cocaine with one notable exception. Somebody who's smoking crack cocaine knows that it's bad for them. The people watching Married at First Sight just think it's a little crazy. The world that you live in has gone mad. Thirdly, how how does this attachment to the world affect how I look at the Lord? Okay, first, is the Lord being reasonable? And the answer is emphatically, no. He is not being reasonable. There is nothing reasonable about what's going on in this world. There's nothing reasonable about the death of 60 million unborn children. There is nothing reasonable about the followers of Islam murdering innocent believers by the hundreds week in and week out with no response from the international community in any way. There's nothing reasonable about the government of a nation conspiring against its citizens with lies and deception to overthrow their nations and surrender their sovereignty into the hands of international power brokers. There's nothing reasonable about electing people that hate your country. Jesus is not asking men and women for a reasonable commitment. Luke chapter 14, verse 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his mother and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Lord, Luke 14, 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. John 12, 25. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In John 14, 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. That means not one person under any circumstances ever will be accepted into the presence of the Father except by the person of Christ. The Lord is not asking us to be reasonable. Not by any standard that this world would embrace or recognize. What he is doing is he's asking us to be and to do those things that allow us to be the residence, the resting place, the vessel of the love of the Father. That's it. He is asking us to be willing 
to be in that place where the love of the Father can work in us and through us, to be willing to touch the lives of those other people around us, which Christ suffered and he died for, those people which he has purchased with his own blood. These people that you're having bad thoughts about, these are people Christ purchased with his blood. Not the elect, everybody. The Father in us. Folks, the love of the Father in us is revealed and identified in us because the love of the world is absent. It is abhorrent. It is repulsive. And maybe most importantly, the love of the world is understood for what it truly is. And if we make a steady diet of the word of God, we will understand the love of this world for what it truly is. And there's nothing loving about it. The love of the Father identifies us as the body of Christ. Who do you want to be identified with? Finally, in the Father upon us, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Behold, consider, contemplate, Note, observe, regard, meditate, check it out. The statement is a proposition made with a conclusion at the end in order for us to to legitimately consider how the Father has blessed us. In other words, how he has poured out his affection upon our lives regarding this issue of having called us his children. The only way for us to begin to appreciate what this means is for us to consider the one who has called us, for us to consider the Lord. When you enter into a relationship with a person, any person, the benefit or disadvantage, heaven forbid, is always considered on the basis of who that person is and what are the implications of a connection under the circumstances. First thing here we need to straighten out is that It's not just that he has called us the children of God. It is the point, in fact, that he has made us the children of God. And that's really what John intends when he says this. We are still in this process. We're being changed. So there are going to be times when that idea of us being the children of God is going to be more ridiculous than others, you know. When you do something really wonderful, you know, when you pray with somebody, they accept Christ. And somebody says, wow, you are the child of God. You say, yeah, I am. I am the child of God. But then, you know, when you, when you mess up really big time and you're on national television and, they, and it's then and somebody says, you're the child of God. And then people all over the country will laugh hilariously because we're still being changed. We're in this process. Do I deserve, do I deserve to be called the children of God? No. In and of myself, the answer is Unequivocal, no. Am I close? Am I close to deserving to being? No. You can tell the people out here who really know me because they shake their heads quickly. (laughs) So watching my wife up there, do I deserve to? She knows. Okay, I just check in. Even on Father's Day, you know, just. One of our problems as humans is that we are somewhat ignorant. Okay, all right. We're like really ignorant. Um, (laughs) We are entirely without means to begin to discover the amazingness of what God's done for us. Only by the Holy Spirit and in the scripture can we begin to breach the surface of this crazy thing, you know, that God has done by claiming us in Christ. Ephesians 3.19 says, To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The love of Christ passes not. doesn't matter how educated you are, how well read you are, or how many times you have studied or thought or employed your amazing brain. It is beyond knowledge. The love of Christ passes knowledge. So this understanding about what God has done for us, it's not available in our language. It's, It's really not. You see, we speak moron. That is our native language. The devil speaks lies, we speak moron, God speaks truth. And hopefully we listen. But unfortunately some don't. Most people don't listen. 
This is the reason the Apostle Paul prays for us in Ephesians 1.18, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Because you ain't going to get it any other way unless God opens your understanding. And notice, glory of his inheritance. Inherit, that's the thing, inheritance. You don't inherit from people that you're not related to. And what, pray tell, are you going to inherit from the Lord? Again, more stuff that you cannot understand without God's help. Remember, he wants us to consider what kind of love he has given to us that we should be called his children. What kind of love is it? It is the kind of love that is, again, way beyond our frame of reference, beyond our understanding, beyond human examples that we can call to except, except, of course, the example of Jesus. You know, fathers would die for their children. Grandfathers would die for their grandchildren. Gladly. The problem in this confused world that we live in, the the act in your right mind of being able to surrender your physical life for any reason, even to save a million children, absolutely defies human ability. Everything about you screams, save yourself. And how do you not do that, which is hardwired into every detail of your person? The answer is, you follow the Lord. John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now, as you read that verse, and you kind of buzz by it as you're reading the Gospel of John superficially, it seems to be saying, he's saying, well, this is a great love. This is a great affection to have. And he is saying that, but that's not all that he's saying. He is saying that this is the ultimate. He's saying this is the apex of God's love. Greater love has no one than this. This is it. You know, Jesus, through the Gospels, is in the habit of looking people in the eye and instructing them about what are some pretty abstract concepts. All the while he's teaching, the exact thing that he's teaching about is happening right in front of him. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. Jesus is teaching the parable of the sower. Sower went out to sow some seed, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. People over here said, huh? What's he talking about? And some seed fell on a path. Oh, I get that. Oh, I just forgot. Some seed fell among the weeds. Wow, that's great. Oh, but I've got to go to the doctor. Some seed fell on good ground. Oh, again, again. Happening right in front of him as he is teaching. It's happening. It's amazing. It really is. In, John, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is talking to the scribes and Pharisees. And he says, He's going to tell him a parable. Let me tell you a parable, okay? It's a story about a man. He owned this big vineyard, and he decided to lease it out to people and let them take care of it. And then at the proper time of season, he sent people back to them to receive the produce. And when they came, said, I'm here to get the produce, they beat those guys, and they threw them out, and they mistreated them, and it was terrible. And then he sent, here's Jesus talking to the scribes and Pharisees, and then he sent his son. And in Matthew 21, 38, but when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And so they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Can you see Jesus telling the scribes and the Pharisees this? Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they look at each other. Well, when he comes, he'll destroy those guys and he'll give the vineyard to somebody else. And Jesus goes, yes. You guys are smart. Very good. You guys, Jesus is crazy. He's crazy. And I mean, in an amazing and beautiful way, he really is. It's wild. And so the Holy Spirit speaks to us from the Scripture and the Bible, in Bible studies, and, and even as we pray. But apart from the Spirit of God, there is no understanding. 
1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. In, in 1 Corinthians 2.11, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. So it's really no wonder here in the last part of 1 John 3.1. Therefore, he says, the world does not know us because it did not know him. In the Gospel of John 15, verse 17, Jesus says, These things I command you, that you love one another. And if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now I have to tell you, sometimes you'll talk to people who speak of this as if it were some kind of a disadvantage. And that is sad. The truth is that God is invested in this process of delivering us. That is, removing us from this world, if necessary, one little piece at a time. And if that causes hardship, and it does, it is temporary hardship. It is in reality, it is a small thing. Second Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light affliction, which is but a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And of course, that is our goal, to be utterly and entirely removed from this present world as the Lord will shortly take us from this place and will translate us into the presence as his children. He's going to do this, folks. And at that time, we will understand exactly, or at least we will understand a whole lot more than we do right now than we can today. The Father is for us in ways we can't even begin to understand, folks. This relationship with him is about our salvation. But you see, salvation covers a lot more ground than we naturally assume. Actually, in the world that we're in right now, our salvation works prominently in three movements. Justification, being saved by acknowledging the death of Christ on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, being cleansed of our sins. Sanctification, which is your salvation working in your life one day at a time. Walking with the Lord, honoring him with your thinking and your words and what you do. Glorification, which has already begun in you. You're already being changed. You're a totally different person from before you knew Christ. But you're going to be a lot different when you come into his presence. The Father with us. 1 John 1, 3, that we have seen what we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, is about justification. That fellowship that we have with him, that salvation, to be one with the Father. The Father in us. Do not love the world or the things of the world in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's about sanctification, to have the nature and the temperament of the Father at work in us according to his power. And finally, the Father upon us. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Finally, to have his favor so revealed upon our lives that we are identified by what we do, how we think, the way we speak as his very children. And you know, 1 John 3, 1 is just one of the ways that the Father's love is revealed upon our lives. The Lord on high, God the creator, being referred to as our Father, is really a rare occurrence in the pages of the Old Testament. Why? According to Nave's Topical Bible, which is a, a pretty reliable source, there are only 17 verses in the 39 books of the Old Testament that make any reference to God as a father or people as his children. And some of those may actually be references exclusively to Jesus. And as you read through the scripture, you can't help but be struck by how differently the Lord interacts with people in the Old Testament. God's the same. He never changes. But as you study through, you see that the determining factor is the ability of people 
to understand, to grasp and apply the revealing of who God is and how he wants to work in our lives and through our lives for the benefit of others. Look through the Old Testament. Look at where the children of Israel are so caught up on Israel and don't realize that God has intended them as a springboard to the nations. And they pass right over all those verses that talk about them being a witnesses to the sojourners and the foreigners because you were a sojourner. And they, they missed it. They totally missed it. So much so that to this day, Orthodox Judaism looks at non-Jewish people as pretty much fuel for hell. That's their understanding. They've missed it. It's interesting because, you know, Jesus, the exact representation of the Father, he had kind of the same problems. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus goes to Nazareth to visit this town where he grew up. And he goes in and sees all the people he went to school with and everybody else he knew being a kid growing up. And he goes into the, the synagogue. The local people flock in. They hear him, hear him teach and they flip out. They absolutely flip out. Matthew thirteen fifty four. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? We know his family. We know his mom, his brothers, his sisters. And verse Matthew thirteen fifty seven says they were offended at him. And in verse 58, and now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Question. Why did he not do many mighty works? What says their unbelief? Now, the word faith people on Christian television, Channel 40, would like for you to believe that their unbelief made it impossible for him to do anything. And there's a theological term for that. It's called baloney. (laughs) If God waited for people to believe, he'd never get anything done. The key issue is something that Jesus says here in in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 29. Jesus says, And he who sent me is with me, and the Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. How often does Jesus do things that don't please the Father? He always does those things that please the all, with no exception, 100% of the time, those things that... So let me ask you, how is the Father pleased when the minds of men are twisted against him? You see, miracles don't happen for God's entertainment. They have a purpose. God's working in the lives of people. We don't see the kinds of miracles in our culture, in our city, in this nation, that people do, for instance, in Iran. They see miracles in Iran. We are jaded. Our culture has affected us. I'm a Christian. I believe God does miracles. I know that he does. If I somebody, saw somebody on television get healed dramatically, somebody with... One eye. All of a sudden they had two eyes. I'm a believer. Come on. I would have trouble. I would have trouble believing that. How is that pleasing to the Lord? It's not. It's wrong. It's because of the the compromise in my heart. I'm messed up. The mind's of people are cut off from the truth. It is unfortunate, but God can truly be inhibited from doing what he would like to do to help those people. 2 Corinthians 6.12, the Apostle Paul writes, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. And you know, it's been a long and difficult process, at least from our perspective, 5,000 years, people begin to come to terms just a little bit of who God really is. If that hadn't been the case, certainly Moses would have been teaching people the Lord's Prayer in the book of Exodus. In Ephesians 6, Paul is asking for prayer. He says, For me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly and make known the mystery of the gospel. This mystery of the gospel... From before time began, God's purpose to bring this to his people. The central issue, of course, the death and the resurrection of Jesus for our forgiveness, the fact that Jesus is God, the creator in human flesh, 
And somewhere in there, in this mystery, folks, is the working of the relationship that brings us together with him, the truth that God is our Father. God is our Father. You see, the Lord invented the idea of a father from nothing. He invented the idea of what a father should be. He created, as surely as if he had worked it up on a chalkboard somewhere. And what, what is his purpose in inventing this father thing? To manifest himself and also people who follow him, that men might follow the world over to aspire to an example of what? What kind of an example is a father supposed to be? A person that is willing to put the interests of others before their own every day without recognition, without compensation, without appreciation. That's what a father is supposed to be. That's what the father does for us. To do the right thing for children and for families, no matter how difficult, to protect the object of your affection at any expense, even if it costs you everything, and to be happy to do so, even if it costs your life. Because one way or another, it will. It will cost your life. And that is a good thing. Happy Father's Day. Father, we want to thank you, Lord. We want to thank you for your grace upon our lives, Lord, to overlook our many failures and shortcomings. And, Lord, we want to appreciate you. We want to, Lord, we want to just express our gratitude to you that you have carried us through to this very day. And, Lord, we do believe that shortly we're going to be in your presence. We're going to minister to you and worship you in person and rejoice to see so clearly what your purpose has been all these days. And Lord, I want to lift up my brothers and sisters here, and some are just struggling, Lord, terribly. And Father, they're overwhelmed, and the enemy is just pounding them. Father, be gracious to them. Let your spirit just breathe the breath of life upon them. Lift their hearts and minds. Lift their eyes, Lord, the eyes of their enlightenment to see your purpose at work. Father, you are so faithful. Help us. Father, as we're all praying together, Lord, and every eye closed. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, we want to give you this opportunity to surrender yourself into his arms. He loves you dearly. He has done everything that can be done to draw you to himself. And if today God has spoken to your heart and you want to commit yourself to him, you want to begin the process of your salvation, to be justified, to be forgiven of your sins, then I would like to ask you to pray this prayer after me. Whether you're watching over the internet, in the fellowship hall, or here in the sanctuary with us, repeat this prayer after me. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I want to ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. Cleanse me from all my failure, Lord. I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross. I believe that he rose from the dead. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me a new life in Christ. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.